Welcome to the April edition of Forecast Direct. I'm Leo Feller, a senior economist with the UCLA Anderson Forecast. And this month, we're very honored to be speaking with Catherine Edwards, uh, who's an economist at RAND and a professor at the Party RAND Graduate School. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, howdy, and thank you for having me. So we have a lot to cover in the next 20 minutes. You've written a lot about income inequality. You've written about gig work. Uh, about unemployment insurance, uh, and you've written about women's labor force participation during this pandemic. So I'm hoping we can discuss uh, all of these topics during this podcast. And let's start with inequality. So you have a paper where you talk about trends in income from 1975 to 2018. And you talk about how economic growth since 1975 has not been as equitable uh, as it was during the two decades following World War II. Can you tell us about your paper and why income growth has not been as equitable more recently? Sure. So we approach this question, which many people have looked at before, wanting to have some type of benchmark comparison to understand income growth, because a really bewitching aspect of talking about economic inequality is that we nobody would say everyone should have the same income, right? Perfect equality is not the goal, but there's something more, more equal than we have now, but what is the benchmark and what, what is good? That, that was one thing we wanted to approach in the paper. And so we, what we decided on was to look at how incomes at various parts of the income distribution, so those households that had the poorest and those that, the, that were the poorest and those that are the richest, whether or not they grew faster or slower than the economy overall. So if GDP grew by 3%, you know, how much did, uh, how much would that predict if it was all, if everyone grew by the same pace as GDP, how much income should everyone have? Unfortunately, for the bottom 90% of households, they have been uh, falling behind economic growth rates for almost 40 years. And so the, just the, the foregone income that would be going to the bottom 90% of households had their incomes just grown apace with GDP, not necessarily faster, um, it would be almost double median income today for just your typical median worker. And if you add that up over time, it, it comes out to almost $2 trillion a year that would be going to the bottom 90% of households, but is instead going to the top. So if you think of economic growth being a parcel that you, you know, dole out every year, what we documented was that the, you know, top 1% basically grew kind of 300% faster than economic growth and the bottom 90 grew slower. So why is that? Why did economic growth not accrue as equitably to, to the bottom 90%. Yeah, so how people answer that really depends on which primary they vote in. Um, <laughs> that is That comes down to very strong held opinion about where economic growth comes from. And it is really hard to convince people that, uh, that what they already believe isn't the answer. And I, and I say that because we, we, this was a paper that we thought was, you know, relatively state accounting It's pretty straightforward and we got all kinds of pushback and, and it became very political, even though it wasn't a political paper for us, you know, lots of research has shown that the bottom 20% uh, will have faster income growth if the minimum wage is higher. Um, there's been great research uh, that's from a professor at UC Berkeley who looked at the effect of the minimum wage increase of the 1960s, which increased the applicability of the minimum wage, mm -hmm. which occupations 
it covered. There's been research that has shown um, from Hank Farber of, at, out of Princeton that unions contributed greatly to the middle class in the United States, but it's never one thing, right? And it could be multiple things that move in different directions that cause this. And so I think there's no one single explanation and it's certainly nothing that we had the capacity to look for causal reasoning in our paper. This was kind of, here's the accounting, we can look for reasons. But I, I would say that I, I, I think it goes pretty counterintuitive to what people would expect. One thing we ended up talking a lot about um, this summer, because it came out not that long before the George Floyd uh, protest, were that you know some of the strongest black income growth that we documented was during the Jim Crow era, right? And that you know people tend to link in their mind that the increase in civil rights, you know, was a one-for-one -one mapping to the increase in economic rights and economic prosperity. But in fact, the gap between wealth of white and black Americans is larger now than it was in 1968. Mm. And so there are so many pieces and layers to this. You know, we don't have a great cause, but we think it's both things that have been identified and people have talked about, like the minimum wage and unions, but and, and also probably things that we haven't thought about and talked about enough. Uh, so do you think economic growth might become more equitable during the next few decades, right? Given the, the, the technological changes we've experienced uh, and, and that have been accelerated because of this pandemic, you know, do you think, you know, we're, we're as the economy rebounds and as we have faster growth that, that we're forecasting for these next several years, that the distribution of this growth will, will mirror the distribution that has, that has occurred before the pandemic where the bottom 90% wasn't really getting, you know, its uh, its proportionate share of that growth. All right. Well, that's an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I, I mean, I'm optimistic on a lot of levels. I think that a minimum, uh, an, a higher minimum wage, above what it is now, would help. But I think probably something that would move more would be a, the end of the tipped minimum wage. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that it's 2021 and uh, there are people who make $2.13 an hour on, on paper uh, is pretty incredible. And I, I think that the policy is moving towards the economic kind of prosperity of the bottom half being a concern and a priority. And I don't know how much it was in the past, but I think the idea of equitability, the idea of inclusivity has a stronger hold now than it might've had in you know 1980. So I also think that the Fed has truly changed a lot of its posture around the mandate of, of full employment. I think that they have, they have, you know, I was reading not two days ago in the paper about how they are starting to benchmark around the black unemployment rate, right? Something I've, I never really thought the Fed would put as a priority in terms of economic benchmarks. And I thought that that was a reason for optimism. You know, if you only look for success amongst whom there are people who are mostly successful already, it's, it's pretty easy to leave people behind. And indicators and data, these things drive the decision-making and the policy-making. And so I, I think that that's starting to change as well. All right, so we have some, some optimism for what uh, economic growth might do to help uh, alleviate some of the income inequality going forward. Um, let me turn to your work about, uh, you know, people working multiple jobs, people having side hustles in the gig economy. Uh, so you talk about 
uh, the gig economy. And I wanted to see if your thinking is that, has this helped workers? Has this helped households earn additional income? Or has the rise of gig work eroded traditional opportunities for good paying jobs? What we documented in the paper, looking from the era of around 1996 to around 2015, so over this 20 year period, we were looking at who holds multiple jobs and what types of jobs they are. And the survey that we use does not ask about gig work, but it does ask about casual earnings, moonlighting, um, other income not specified. And, and so th this is how we were able to piece together whether or not you were in formal or informal employment um, in the data. And what we found is that multiple job holders and gig workers really aren't the same group. So there are a lot of people out there who work two jobs and it's, and it's very stable. So they, they like, so you can imagine someone who's like a paralegal at two different law offices or someone who works half time and then also runs a business, right? These are, these are very long-term jobs. They stay in them for a long time and, and together these earnings um, kind of push them to a place of economic security. The people who had informal work arrangements, people who had who said in a survey that they moonlighted, they that came much more infrequently. And if they did that type of work, it was not nine to five, uh, and it was not every month that they or every year that they were in the survey. It was very sporadic in how these earnings were used. So I think that we were limited in the time period we were looking at. There could be people who are 100% full-time gig workers all of the time, I, I think that this is a relatively small group. And that instead there are people who uh, use it as like a, a as needed supplement. Like, you know, the like the pipes burst in my house because there was a big storm in Texas and we need a couple extra couple hundred dollars. You know, I could go drive or I could clean something or do some, one of these gig tasks. And then when I have the money, I don't. And I saw it much more as a reflection of the lack of emergency savings amongst US households and less so a fundamental change about our labor market. I mean, we, we, we definitely saw patterns that aligned more with people needing cash quickly and less so people eschewing a formal sense of employment because of the freedom of an online platform. So that, that was how we saw it. And that was definitely the explanation that aligned much more like the intuition of people needing cash but not having savings was much more uh, in line with our findings. So now a little bit of a controversial question as a follow-up to this, which is given, you know, your findings about how households, how individuals are using this type of gig work side hustle, um, you know, what are your thoughts on something like Prop 22 and classifying these types of workers as employees? Would that create barriers to entry uh, and make it perhaps more difficult for people to engage in these side hustles? Or would that actually benefit people in terms of, you know, allowing them to earn more when they are actually engaged in these activities? That is a great question. I will say, so three things. One, one of the findings that didn't make it into the paper that we're, we're developing separately and will hopefully be published this year is that the rates of multiple job holding, kind of the incidence of doing gig work falls when the minimum wage rises. Hmm. So if you were earning sufficiently at your primary job, or if your earnings increase because of something like a minimum wage increase, we saw a lot less casual earning. 
So that I think is a good, if, if not published in peer reviewed fact that we would want to add to the conversation. The second thing I'll say is, you know, there's the worker's perspective and there's the firm's perspective. And the, the, for me, the firm perspective is um, that platforms like Lyft and Uber are not paying social security taxes on these workers and they're not paying into the unemployment insurance system. And the classification question becomes really wrapped up in, you know, access to work when from my perspective, it's the question should be what are what are they giving into the system and what are they getting out of it? So I think there's been at least three reports from the Government Accountability Office about how many people who work full time at Walmart are on Medicaid. Right. And that the fact that they pay such low wages is subsidized by the government stepping in. I mean, that's that's kind of the same question from a different perspective when you look at Uber and Lyft drivers that they are not paying into the employer risk system that exists. And I think, you know, the recession offers more of an insight into that than the than Prop 22 for me, because I, I think I read about five articles about Uber's new CEO talking to anyone who he could in Congress to get relief for his drivers not from the unemployment insurance system that they don't pay into and he doesn't want to pay into, but from some, some type of relief for his drivers who weren't going to be able to work. So they have a need. They've expressed that there's a need. They've said that they need to provide risk and insurance to their workers. They just don't want to do it in the venue that's available because of whatever reason that I can't speculate on. So I, I'm not familiar enough with the details of Prop 22, but this is another example of pushing more risk onto workers, one that even the CEO of Uber said that they were not able to face on their own. So I would be, I think there's more room for creative policy about classification. You know, I think the classification argument itself would be a lot different if there were say a kind of like per cap 1099 issuance task, tax that, that uh, employers had to pay. You know, so, you know, sure, they, they can be classified as gig workers, you can give them a 1099, but every 1099 you issue, you have to pay 10 bucks, yep. 50 bucks, something like that. And then the, if you can't force the incentives through legality, you can work with incentives through the tax system. So and I think that, you know, so long as they have so much money to lose, they'll never like that their incentive is so clear no matter what they say they want like their incentive is the money they don't want to pay so i i think you know you can just change the incentives sometimes easier than you can change their classification so since you brought up the the uh, pandemic unemployment assistance uh let's use this as a way to transition to talking about unemployment insurance so we saw during this pandemic that uh, unemployment increased to over 14%, the highest since we've had since the Great Depression. Uh, and we're now at about 6% unemployment, uh, although to your point, this varies you know, drastically between uh, white unemployment, black unemployment, which is still you know, close to uh, black unemployment, still close to 10%. Um, and, but the overall unemployment, 6%, compares to 3.5% that we had right before the pandemic hit. Uh, you know, given the number of people that entered the unemployment system, given things like Uber uh, advocating for you know pandemic unemployment uh, assistance for gig workers, right? How do you think that our unemployment insurance system performed during this time? And what are some thoughts about reforms 
that our system needs going forward. Unemployment insurance has the advantage that it has an incredibly stable base because it is a social insurance program. And for workers in covered employment, there were a lot of administrative difficulties. They were hit with an incredible amount of claims, but I mean, they still paid out millions of claims in a matter of weeks during this crisis. The real problem with unemployment insurance was that the benefits were low and that they didn't cover enough people and that they varied so much by state. Though that has been problems with the program for, for decades. And I think there is justifiably a lot of focus on the administration and the, the IT systems. And you know, I'd, I'll read a dozen articles about the COBOL Cowboys like I'll, every day. I would love to start my day with one, but that I think that that's kind of a little bit obfuscating what's really going on, which is that you had a social insurance program of a very stable base that not enough people got that's run by states. And then you had a federal program that was basically you know, shoved on top of it on very short notice. And most of the fraud um, is associated with the pandemic unemployment assistance. And that makes sense. I mean, states didn't have wage records for the entirety of their work history in the state for a driver who was asked to submit their income after they put in their application. I mean, they, the, the, the administrative burden of pandemic unemployment assistance was truly incredible and unprecedented. And for me, the lesson is it is very difficult to build a program during a crisis. And it's one more argument for, you know, broad federal reform. But so I guess the kind of getting to your answer to the question, unemployment it, okay, unemployment insurance did good for how long we've neglected it and how weak the program it had become. But ultimately, what we learned from this recession was just how out, out of date these state-based programs had gotten, how many are already out of funds and so on. So I, I, I compare it to a house that is standing on a foundation that has all the doors and windows blown out and has been sitting in water for 40 years. It could be okay, but you should probably do some work on it before it rains again, right? That there, there's more to be done, and I, um, I think that it makes the conversation kind of hard talking about uh, in terms of policy because this the regular state UI program without the federal add-on and without pandemic unemployment assistance is truly a separate program than pandemic unemployment assistance, even though they were administered by the same state workforce agencies. So let's, you know, I, I think you wrote about how the fact that the federal government stepped in and provided these supplements and topped off uh, in terms of uh, giving additional $600 a week, giving pandemic unemployment assistance, extending the time frame, that this might actually, you know, serve as a disincentive for some states to actually take care of their own unemployment insurance systems. Because basically from the state's perspective, they now say, okay, well, if we ever have a recession that's you know, big enough, deep enough, then the federal government's gonna step in. Why should we bother having uh, you know, a, a well-functioning, generous unemployment insurance system if the federal government will take care of it? So, well, I mean, I think the, the question that, you should, that, that you're close to and you should be asking of why should we increase taxes on our employer base coming out of a recession to prepare for the next one if the federal government's going to pay for it, right? Why should I put my employers at a disadvantage? I think the way that I explain it to people is that 
the only permanent constituency of the unemployment insurance system are the employers who pay the taxes. The statutory incidence of unemployment insurance is only on employers. It's not like Social Security where you see FICA on your paycheck and both you and your employer are paying. You've never seen the stub for unemployment insurance and you, you might not have known that you were even paying into it based on your wages. So that gives a natural race to the bottom among states to have the lowest taxes. And, you know, we've been here before. After the last recession, the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, 34 state programs had to borrow from the federal government. And the Government Accountability Office said, you know, you are not going to be prepared for the next recession unless you increase your taxes and have better future funding into the program. And some of them did that. Some of them raised their taxes. Some of them, you know, prepared and had a stable benefit base. But a lot of them didn't. And a lot of them said that we're just going to go the other way. And rather than pay for a large trust fund, we're just going to make sure there aren't that many claims on it. So I think there was some just absurdly low number of people getting unemployment insurance claims in Florida. It was in the tens of thousands. And they only had access for nine weeks. And the benefits weren't that generous. But unfortunately, Florida actually you know, for as much heat as they get in the press, Florida doesn't have a trust fund insolvent at the moment. And all the states that cut their benefits after the last recession, those are the states that are not borrowing right now. So it's, it's a lesson that comes from multiple directions, both seeing that the people who did not step up for their program and tax their employers more, but rather try to get workers to have it left. From the perspective of solvency, they're doing better right now than the states in other positions. And, and that, you know, and then that added to that is the CARES Act and the intervention from the federal government this time around. And I think it's just, it's two incentives that are very clear. If I'm going to learn any lesson from this recession, it's going to be, I should cut taxes, cut benefits and wait for the federal government to step in. So the question really becomes, you know, when is the federal government going to step in on a permanent level, as opposed to an ad hoc one during recessions? And so I guess that brings me to, you know, maybe a, a summation question, which is, should we just federalize unemployment insurance uh, or should we still have these be state-based systems? Yes, I think we ha there needs to be room for states to do, to do what is appropriate for their states and then move, move benefits up to the federal government. So, or maybe a more concise way of saying that would be, there is a role for states and there is a role for the federal government. For benefit allocation and administration, for workers who move across states, who work in multiple states, you know, in terms of equity and ease of administration, that is really a federal government, or, or rather the federal government has shown that they can provide quick and uh, equitable administration much more so than the state unemployment insurance system. So I wrote a piece earlier this last summer uh, pointing out that simply by virtue of where they live, black workers will get less in unemployment insurance than white workers because they happen to live in states in larger proportion to have much lower benefits. Now you can argue that they chose to live there. I would say I would never argue that a lot of black people chose to live in Mississippi um, without seeming you know, a little short-sighted and naive. But the question is, do, do you think that people should deserve who earn the same amount of money? I mean, earn the exact same amount of money and work the exact same amount of time. Do you think that they should have two different unemployment insurance benefits? And what are the consequences if they do? 
we've seen so much the consequences of inequality and disparity, you know, if we had a choice to, to change that, you know, a federal uniform benefit that's based not, you know, that's based on their earnings. I mean, I've, I've had people ask me, you know, what about cost of living across state? Well, that's incorporated into your wages, right? You know, if it's based on your wages, it's not based on the cost of your apartment, you know, or the cost of food, that's that your wage already reflects that. So that's the same thing with social security, right? It's all, it's only based on your wages. But I do think that state governments have workforce administrations that have an administration and technical expertise and capacity to work during recessions, not necessarily kind of bolstered by the state government in the state legislature, keeping the benefits good and keeping the taxes high enough. But that doesn't mean that the states don't have a role to play. So other things that have happened to unemployment insurance besides benefits being reduced is the amount of employment services that are given, assistance in job search, uh, counseling for job search and, and help, you know, moving across the state to go to a job that's available somewhere else. I mean, there's lots of roles for state governments from that perspective, you know, through things like the American Job Centers. But the other part that I, I like to talk about is, you know, I thought the Paycheck Protection Program was the other program we could have learned a lot from this recession, which is that businesses need help too. And again, Paycheck Protection Program, if you start a program during a crisis, it will be rife with fraud. Um, but I, I thought that it was it was interesting to me that we saw that we have a program in which employers currently pay taxes into a state system, and we saw in this recession that employers need to have some kind of insurance mechanism for a crisis as well, and that states are much more geared to their employer tax base than they are to their worker tax base through this program. So I had this you know, kind of pie in the sky notion that perhaps the Paycheck Protection Program could be rolled into some kind of permanent insurance scheme for employers, where if they don't want it, you know, they don't pay into it, but that means their workers don't suffer. Um, and this would be, you know, kind of one part moving the work share system into a, a requirement where you would pay employers to not fire their workers, but pay a portion of their wages to keep them on, on payroll. So the all of this rambling is indicative of the fact that there are so many options for unemployment insurance and we haven't taken any of them because we have not meaningfully reformed the system since 1976 and even that's a pretty generous uh kind of summary i mean i said 1976 and someone who knows a lot more about unemployment insurance than me said he wouldn't put a put it a day past 55 right so we have decades of experience and so many recessions that we've learned from and we've incorporated so little into how this program is fundamentally structured so something for something for unemployed workers better benefits more equitable benefits something that provides services to employers there's so many things that we could incorporate and at the moment states have very little incentive to do it on their own so what's to, to kind of wrap up what do you think is the most important takeaway from this pandemic uh about our country's social safety net. What, what lessons would you take away for, for the future and for going forward? Well, number one, social insurance provides the most stable base. Number two, uh, state benefits have a kind of fundamental inequality about them, state varying benefits. Um, and number three, you know, it's during a crisis is a really bad time to uh, prepare for one. 
But I should say that, you know, I don't know if you can see, I'm very biased. I have Francis Perkins on the wall behind me. I am a social insurance expert, and I think that that is the, um, the kind of highest functioning programs. And I, and I say that because of all of the news that I'm sure everybody listening has read during the recession, you have not read a single story about Social Security. You haven't read about Social Security being subject to fraud. You haven't read about seniors sleeping outside of Social Security offices across states trying to get benefits. You haven't heard about the program bleeding funds and running out and not knowing how they're going to pay for it and emergency loans coming in. You, you, haven't read, you haven't read any of this. And I'm sure when the poverty numbers come out next year, they'll show that once again, poverty amongst the elderly fell. Because it's an incredibly stable program with a very clear benefit structure. Granted, their administration is easier. Are you 67? But, but, you know, some of the lessons we can learn are from who we didn't hear about and not just who we did. All right, well, Catherine, thank you so much. A very insightful conversation uh, and really a pleasure to have you on. Um, thank you. And, you know, we, we really appreciate the insights that you shared. Thank you so much. It was, it was a pleasure to be here and um, yeah. All right.